Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at Costa Rica Travel Pass dot com or calling one eight seven 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 eight zero seven two seven seven. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com on the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. discussion. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at LDS Leadership Principles. You can also find this podcast on iTunes or at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. Today I want to talk about follower stages of faith, but we've done that before. Today I want to tie it into the Book of Mormon and the Gospel in general. And I have to start off by explaining that Fowler's Stages of Faith, I at least have to give a synopsis of Stages 3 through 5. Again, we've done that before, but I know some listeners have just started listening to the program, which I appreciate our uh, our listenership has uh, risen and is going up. It is reaching a higher number of listens quicker, and so I am greatly appreciative of all those who are tuning into the program. Fowler was a behavioral uh, scientist. Uh, he developed a theory on how faith progresses, and he labeled them in stages. And stage one and two uh, are not necessarily important to the discussion today, but just for information, they would pertain to a younger age group generally, and most people move out of those stages. Most people get to stage three. Stage three is where one has a very literal belief. One sees the world very black and white. One bases their beliefs very much outwardly on authority figures that they perceive and the way in which those people see the world. So based kind of in within the church, if one were asked, why should we not be okay with cremation, for instance, rather than someone reasoning within themselves why that is, they will point to some book they read from an early church leader who said that we shouldn't do it. Most people not only get to stage three, but most people stay there. In stage four is where most faith crises occur. And it happens because people realize that the world no longer works this way. That things aren't as literal, as black and white as they thought they were. And they no longer trust outward authorities to have the final say on how they're going to behave or act. And so stage four folks will disassemble their faith and come to doubt 
much of what they had believed in Stage 3, or at the very least, the way in which they had put it together in Stage 3. Stage 5 is a place where one then reassembles their faith in a way that works for them. And so you'll find folks who, once they get to Stage 5, no longer base their beliefs on what others say, but rather what makes sense to them in a very intrinsic way. Now, the way to kind of understand those in stage three, and I think Heavenly Father deals with us in the stage that we're in, and that's what I want to kind of talk about today. One of the things that we do in stage three is we base our life on rules. So we've got commandments, right? So we know Moses comes off the mount with the Ten Commandments, and in the Israelites end up taking these Ten Commandments and turning them into hundreds and hundreds of others, which must be followed strictly in order for one to be righteous and get back to God. We, within the LDS faith, will even do this. We will overstate the case. So when it comes to things such as the Word of Wisdom, you'll hear members who are in shock and awe when they hear someone ate a beer-battered onion ring or someone drank a Pepsi. When it comes to tithing, some folks will decide, as Rock Waterman pointed out, to pay more than 10%, thinking that that will bring more than the standard blessing. People will get all in a huff if a member wears a beard, because, uh uh-oh, you can't do that. Um, I know when it comes to shirt color. So we're kind of taught in the church that white is purity, which, which I do think symbolically it is. And so generally speaking, I think it's a sign of respect if we walk into uh, our meetings as priesthood brethren wearing a white shirt. But about one out of every four weeks, I'll wear a blue shirt or a pink shirt. And the reason I do that is simply to try and shake off this whole follow the rule mentality just for the sake of following the rule. And I want people to see in my ward, for instance, that one can wear a colored shirt once in a while and still be a dedicated member of the church who is temple-worthy, who strives to keep the commandments. The the trouble in stage three when one is commandment-based is one very much feels a freedom to stand in judgment over others. One feels empowered that if they're following the rules and someone else isn't, that they can look down on them. And I don't think a lot of members do that, but I do think some do, and I think stage three just naturally allows for this to happen. So we recognize in stage four that we disassemble this, right? We recognize that eating a beer-battered onion ring isn't against the spirit of the law of the Word of Wisdom. We come across stories of President David O. McKay eating rum cake or drinking a cola, and we recognize that he got it. He understood that there there wasn't this letter of the law that had to, to be followed in every instance. And so people in stage four will disassemble this, and they'll begin to question if indeed one is obligated to follow the rules as those around them have established them. Now, the neat thing is is that in stage five, we would stop looking outwardly at what others set as the rules, and we begin to look inwardly or intrinsically at the spirit of the law, and we judge, we begin to judge based on the Holy Ghost. Now, here's where this kind of comes into play. The stages are not based on intelligence. There are very, very smart people who are who are in stage three. There are atheists in stage three. In fact, most atheists are in stage three. Most Mormons are in stage three. Most Baptists, most Muslims, most Hindus, um, most Buddhists are in stage three. Stages are not based on intelligence. They're not based on a specific faith. 
but it's a progression of maturity, wisdom, experience, and most importantly, it is based on the ability for one to find it important to seek out truth and to seek out enlightenment and to seek out better understanding on things and not to simply trust the very basics of what they're told and to shun off truth when it shows up. In other words, our church recognizes that there's more truth to come. And yet some Latter-day Saints say, nope, I'm not going to go seek after more truth unless it's been revealed by my prophet or my bishop. And yet the Lord doesn't teach that. The Lord teaches that we should be seeking out truth by study and by faith, and so that we should be receiving truth from multiple channels. Now here's the key. A 25-year-old will almost never be reasoning religious philosophies at stage 5. They may once in a while hear someone else talk about it, and they may begin to grasp it, but it will not be theirs. They won't own it. At 25 years old, one is almost, I'm not going to say for sure, but one is almost incapable of being at a stage 5 within Fowler's stages of faith. Now, why do I say that? Here's why. If we go to the Book of Mormon, we find Nephi, for instance. Nephi, to me, is very stage 3. He... He doesn't have any problem telling you how his everyone around him murmurs and, and are complainers. And yet he is righteous. He has no problem telling you that he keeps the commandments. He has no problem telling you that he will do all the things which the Lord hath commanded him. I, I almost sense within Nephi a certain amount of arrogance. And as I read the the first chapters of the Book of Mormon... I I read them with a little bit of skepticism, not towards the historicity of the book, but rather towards the idea that Nephi's brothers may not be quite as bad as he paints them, that he lives very much in a black and white world, right? There are those who keep the commandments and there are those who don't. And I'm one who keeps them and my brothers don't. And so when we turn to the Book of Mormon, there's there's one story. I don't remember what chapter it's in. I, I didn't look this up beforehand because it's just come, came to mind. But there's one instance where Laban and Lemuel are beating up uh, Nephi and Sam. And Nephi prays for this to end, and an angel shows up. And Nephi recounts the story by pointing out that the angel said, Why dost thou uh, beat thy brother Nephi? Now here's the problem. The, the angel should have, and probably did, also mention Nephi's brother Sam. You see, Laman and Lemuel were beating up both, both brothers. And as they were giving a good licking to both brothers, Nephi and Sam, Nephi prays. And I'm sure Sam prayed too. But when Nephi recounts the story, he recounts it very much stage three. Very, very, uh, I don't want to say self-centered in some ways, but focused on how it affects him. And so he recounts that the angel looks at Laman and Lemuel and only points out, why dost thou beat thy brother Nephi? That, that to me seemed odd. But it fits very well with Nephi's personality throughout the entire beginning of the Book of Mormon. But then something changes. You go into Second Nephi, chapter 4, and a huge event occurs. The event is that Lehi dies. Now before Lehi dies, he lines his children up and gives them blessings. And Nephi records in the Book of Mormon the blessings that are given, except there's a problem. He leaves out his own blessing. He records the blessings given to his brothers. He records conversation with Zoram. He talks about his father's death, but he never recalls the blessing that he was given. Now, I've read several thoughts on this, and one author discussed how Nephi likely wasn't very happy 
with some of the pieces of the blessing he was given. And one example he shared of this was that the Book of Mormon was passed on from Nephi to his brother Jacob. And that would lead one to believe that Nephi did not have any sons. And since Nephi is given some blessings where things shall be passed on through his posterity, and Nephi assumes that that's going to come through male children, that he's given no sons, and that in some ways that blessing was um, troublesome or not exactly what he wanted to hear. So Nephi, after his father Lehi dies, he, of course he, he recalls these blessings, records the death, but then all of a sudden we get a completely different Nephi. We go from the Nephi who keeps all the commandments, who is so righteous and everyone else around him is falls down while he is the one who stands straight. He is the one who keeps all of the, the law of his Father in heaven. He's the one who's obedient. He's the one who does all that God asks him to do. And all of a sudden we get a completely different Nephi in Second Nephi chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. He says, Behold, my soul delighteth in the things of the Lord, and my heart pondereth continually upon the things which I have seen and heard. Nevertheless, notwithstanding the great goodness of the Lord, and showing me his great marvelous works, my heart exclaimeth, O wretched man that I am! Yea, my heart sorroweth because of my flesh, my soul grieveth because of mine iniquities. I am encompassed about because of the temptations and the sins which do so easily beset me. And when I desire to rejoice, my heart groaneth because of my sins. Nevertheless, I know in whom I have trusted. So Nephi here talks about, first he talks about how the sea sins do so easily beset him. In other words, he is overcome by these temptations. He gives in to them. For the first time in the Book of Mormon, he is admitting that he is severely flawed like the rest of us. That he makes serious mistakes. And then he talks about whom he trusts, the Savior, Jesus Christ, to help over, overcome that. When we grasp here this big change in Nephi, and then moving forward from here throughout the rest of Second Nephi, I see a different author. I see somebody whose heart has changed. Not just somebody who keeps the rules because they keep the rules. But I see someone who now understands the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you fast forward to, for instance, Second Nephi chapter 31, where we're taught the doctrine of Christ. And the way in which that is taught is so beautiful. And it speaks so deeply to my spirit. Now, I want to end with one other example of this. If we turn to Moroni, chapter 7. Moroni, throughout the Book of Mormon, we find lots of different authors in the Book of Mormon who are very black and white, who are very literal, who are very much keep the commandments for the sake of keeping the commandments. Moroni even does some of that in some of his preaching. But in chapter 7, he doesn't. In chapter 7, he teaches what I would call very much stage 5 theology or philosophy. So we would wonder if Moroni is perhaps stage 3, why we're getting that, and all we have to do is turn to verse 1 and we see, And now I, Moroni, write a few words of my father Mormon, which he spake concerning hope, uh, concerning faith, hope, and charity. So we see that it's not Moroni speaking, but it's Mormon who we're about to hear the sermon from. Now, when we turn to Moroni chapter 7, starting in, let's say, verse 12. Now, keep in mind, for those who want to say the Book of Mormon is a hoax created by Joseph Smith, and I recognize that one perhaps might take the out that Joseph heard this sermon in his community by a minister who who was in stage five of, of Fowler's stages of faith. But the author of Moroni chapter seven takes complete ownership of this philosophy, this theological teaching. 
And so I don't know if that works. But when we look at it, Joseph is a young man in his early 20s. And I don't care how smart Joseph is or how good his memory is. That has no impact at all on whether he's in stage 3, 4, or 5 of Fowler's stages of faith. Mormon, on the other hand, would have been an older man. Someone who had seen battle, someone who had seen things definitely not black and white, very much gray, very much nuance. As he compiled the records, he would have seen things that fit and didn't fit, uh, and would have worked to have taught the gospel in a way that would have reached a large audience. But meanwhile, some of the things he kept out perhaps would have would have not been uh, quite as fitting for the Book of Mormon. So beginning in verse 12, it says, Wherefore all things which are good cometh of God, and that which is evil cometh of the devil. For the devil is an enemy unto God, and fighteth against him continually, and inviteth and enticeth to do sin, and to do that which is evil continually. But behold, that which is of God inviteth and enticeth to do good continually. Wherefore everything which inviteth and enticeth to do good, and to love God and to serve him, is inspired of God. Wherefore, take heed, my beloved brethren, that you do not judge that which is evil to be of God, and that which is good to be of the devil. You see, when we keep commandments, we tend to do that, right? The word of wisdom is no alcohol, so someone eats a beer battered onion ring, and all of a sudden, they are doing evil. And we ought to be careful, Mormon says, to judge falsely that which is evil to be of God, and that which is good and of God to be of the devil. So he's saying, don't get lost in the letter of the law to the point where you end up off or missing the mark. So I pick up now in verse 15. For behold, my brethren, it is given unto you to judge, that ye may know good from evil. And the way to judge is as plain, that ye may know, with a perfect knowledge, as the daylight is from the dark night. For behold, the Spirit of Christ is given to every man, that he may know good from evil. Wherefore, I show unto you the way to judge. For everything which inviteth to to do good, and to persuade to believe in Christ, is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ. Wherefore, ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of God. So, when we look at this here, what what we end up having kind of smack us in the face is this whole let go of the letter of the law and judge every action you do based on whether it brings you closer to Christ or not. And if it does, fine, do it. It comes from God. Anything that enticeth to do good, to bring blessings to others, to serve Heavenly Father's children, that draws you closer to Christ and helps to sanctify you, is of God. It also removes the ability of one in stage three to judge others for the decisions they make. In other words, we're each to judge for ourselves, and nobody's to stand as judge over us. Once we grasp here that Mormon is teaching the higher law, the spiritual law, his his teaching here takes away from what the Pharisees and Sadducees speak of when Christ and his apostles were eating in the field on the Sabbath day. Because they were busy about the Lord's work. And there wasn't a problem with taking in some nourishment so they could keep going. So, for instance, I'll give an example. And I, and I shared this Sunday. And people are welcome to tell me that I'm justifying. But here's where I disagree. You don't, you don't have the right, is what I would say to those. You don't have the right to stand as judge over me. It's not your place. It's up to me to judge. Now, I don't want my listeners to take this too far. Church authorities absolutely have the right to determine if they feel that we have committed some sin that jeopardizes our church membership, to hold us accountable for that. And law enforcement absolutely has the right, if we commit some act that infringes on the rights of others, to address that and to carry out the law. But what I'm saying is that the other member in the ward doesn't have a right to judge whether you are obeying the word of wisdom or not. 
that another member of the ward doesn't have a right to determine what a full tithe is for you. While in my interview last uh, a couple weeks ago with Rock Waterman, we had a discussion about tithing. And we talked about the 1970, I believe it was, it was the year, statement from the First Presidency on Tithing, which is, the definition is 10% of our increase, and that that's interpreted by the church as income, and that nobody's to say more or less on it, and it's up to every member to decide between them and the Lord what is a fair and honest tithing. So when I go in and sit down with my bishop, and I say, Bishop, I've paid a full tithe. Now, regardless of how I define that, because it's, because it's between me and the Lord, it's between me and the Lord. And while the bishop has a right to the spirit of discernment to know if I am being honest with myself between me and the Lord, he doesn't, according to that statement, have the right to interpret what tithing is for me. Do you see that? The Lord asks us to live by the spirit of the law. When I look at the temple interview, those questions are between me and the Lord. What does it mean that I have a testimony of this or of that? Well, it's between me and the Lord if I answer that question in the affirmative. And if I do, while the bishop, again, has the right of discernment to decide whether I am being honest or I'm hiding something, he doesn't have the right there to interpret what the meaning of those questions are down to specifics and details. So, for example, I have no problem with how some members will believe the Book of Mormon to be the Word of God and perhaps struggling to find it to be historical and yet still find it to have come from the divine and to be an influence on them. Now, I'll stop here and say this. I believe the Book of Mormon to be historical, and I hope that all members work towards seeing it that way. But I also want to allow people the flexibility to work out those details without being cast out of the church in the meantime. And Elder Holland says the same thing in his interview with PBS, which I'll share a link to at the end of this this episode. I want to wrap up by saying Moroni chapter 7 makes it very clear that the ability is between us individually to judge what brings us closer to Christ and what doesn't. The example I was going to use is football. I uh, grew up as a non-member, joined the church at the age of 17. I am a huge, huge Cleveland Browns fan. Now, I don't want you guys to feel sorry for me. I realize the Cleveland Browns haven't won a whole lot since 1954. That's the last time they, they won a championship, and that was before the Super Bowl was in place. But I'm a huge Cleveland Browns fan. Cleveland Browns play football on Sunday. I'm told to keep the Sabbath day holy. My family are non-members. Families are important in the church. The one time a week I go over to visit my mother and father, who are not members of the church, is to go over there on a Sunday. On Sundays, I leave church, I race over to my parents' house, and I sit down with my dad, and him and I, we sit together and we watch a game of football. And we talk, and we conversate about other things going on in life, and that experience draws me closer to him, and that experience draws me closer to my Savior. Now, you can raise your eyebrow, you can question all you want, but you see it is given unto me to judge that I may know good from evil, and the way to judge is as plain, that ye may know with a perfect knowledge as the daylight is from the dark night. For, for behold, the Spirit of Christ is given to every man, including me, that I may know good from evil. Wherefore the Lord shows unto me the way to judge, for everything which inviteth to do good and to persuade to believe in Christ is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ. Wherefore I may know with a perfect knowledge it is of God. So you have no place to decide that for me, but I get to judge. May I finish by saying this. It's not a cop-out. Don't use this whole, this scripture and this this way of seeing it as a cop-out to do what you want to do. But rather, it places the responsibility on you to be in tune with the Holy Ghost, to be striving to press forward with steadfastness, to be feasting upon the Word of Christ, that you might be in tune in a way that you might know those things that bring you closer to Christ and those things that enticeth you to do good. 
and if they do, it's up to you to judge, whether they're appropriate or not. I bear witness that God will work with those in stage three by giving them commandments and laws and lines in the sand to stay on the safe side of. But for those in stage five, he also gives us a way to live and a way to know. I bear witness that whether one is in stage three or stage four, which is where I feel like I'm firmly planted, or in stage five with people like Terrell Gibbons and others, the Lord teaches at our level and gives us the structure or flexibility that we need to be sanctified and to come unto Christ. I bear witness that in the ways I've defined before, I believe this is the true and living church. And I'm grateful for the Book of Mormon and for its ability to teach at all levels. I don't believe Joseph Smith was capable of teaching this philosophy at the age he was at when he translated the Book of Mormon. It's one more evidence I put in the cap of the Book of Mormon being the Word of God. And I leave this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless. And may the Lord warm your shoulders. Taking out my issues never healed the flame